Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. On a September day in the year AD 9, a Roman army was marching through northwestern Germany, heading westward in the direction of the Rhine River. To their south lay a range of hills, while north of them began the flat and sandy terrain of the North European plain. They're on their way back to base after a mission across the Rhine. A man named Quintilius Varus commanded a force of about 15 to 20,000 troops, consisting of the infantrymen of the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions, Rome's finest, as well as allied forces of three units of cavalry and three of infantry. They made a splendid sight, all those armed men, horses, mules, and wagons. Each legion carried an image of the imperial eagle of Rome, as well as a staff bearing its name and number. The army on the march extended over a distance of about two miles. Welcome back to Antiquitas in our series on great battles of the ancient world. Today, we're joining the Romans as they marched into a cruel destiny, into one of their greatest defeats, Teutoburg Forest. In German, it's something like Teutoburger Wald. Uh, My German's imperfect, and we'll call it Teutoburg Forest. It's common to refer to the engagement in the Teutoburg Forest as a battle, and we'll do so today but it might be more accurate to refer to it as an ambush or a massacre. We're looking at Teutoburg Forest today because, in a way, it's part of a pair with what we discussed last time, the Battle of Actium. In AD 9, at the time of Teutoburg Forest, the ruler of Rome was Augustus. We met Augustus in our last episode when he was known as Octavian. Augustus was the first of Rome's emperors and one of its longest reigning rulers, His era was bookended by two battles, the Battle of Actium, where his forces defeated Antony and Cleopatra at sea in Greece, took place in 31 BC, four years before Octavian was proclaimed Augustus in 27 BC. We explored Actium, of course, in our last podcast. Actium was a victory for Augustus, or at least it led to a victory. Not so the second battle, which was a defeat, a tremendous defeat a thunderclap that shook the Roman sky. This was the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. It took place in Germany in AD 9, five years before Augustus' death. Now, another reason we're looking at the Teutoburg Forest is that it offers a terrific example, and a rare one, of how archaeology can bring ancient military history to life. As I hope you'll agree, that's a great story. But let's rejoin the Roman army on the march in that late summer day exactly 2,010 years ago. They were marching through unfamiliar country, heavily forested with oaks and beech trees, but they had excellent intelligence from a trusted local guide, Arminius, a Germanic chieftain who fought for Rome. Germany at that time consisted of about 50 different tribes. Arminius belonged to one of them known as the Cherusci. Arminius had an intimate knowledge of Rome. 
He had served as an officer in an allied unit in the Roman army. He had become a Roman citizen. He was, in fact, a member of the equestrian order, the second highest class in the Roman citizenry, a group of very wealthy men. Only the senators, who were super rich, stood higher. One of our Roman sources describes Arminius as followed. He was a young man of noble birth, brave in action and alert in mind, possessing an intelligence quite beyond the ordinary barbarian. He was namely Arminius, the son of Sigimer, a prince of that nation, and he showed in his countenance and in his eyes the fire of the mind within. He had been associated with us constantly on private campaigns, and he'd even attained the dignity of equestrian rank. Yet the Roman commander Varus had been warned not to trust Arminius, and been warned that Arminius had turned traitor. But Varus chose not to believe the warning. The sources tell us that Arminius often ate with Varus in the officer's mess, and they seemed to be comrades. Since Varus was an experienced soldier and politician, we can assume that Arminius was very persuasive. Arminius told Varus that a rebellion was afoot in this part of Germany. Varus decided to march there and put it down, even though he didn't know this particular territory. Arminius said, don't worry, he would ride ahead and rally some of his supporters. Now, by AD 9, the Romans had been fighting in Germany for several decades. Varus felt that the region was largely pacified, and he didn't need to take any special precautions, therefore. But the sources tell us that Arminius had tricked Varus. I'm going to quote from another Roman author. Now, the German tribes did not openly revolt, since they saw that there were many Roman troops near the Rhine and many within their own borders. Instead, they received Varus, pretending that they would do all he demanded of them, and thus they drew him far away from the Rhine. And there, by behaving in a most peaceful and friendly manner, led him to believe that they would live submissively without the presence of soldiers. How different things turned out to be on that September day in AD 9. Suddenly, thousands of men fell on the Romans from both sides. It was a trap and an effective one. Here's how one of the ancient sources describes it. They escorted Varus as he set out, and then begged to be excused from further attendance, in order, as they claimed, to assemble their allied forces, after which they would quietly come to his aid. Then they took charge of their troops, which were already in waiting somewhere, and after the men in each community had put to death the detachments of soldiers for which they had previously asked, they came upon Varus in the midst of forests by this time almost impenetrable. And there, at the very moment of revealing themselves as enemies instead of subjects, they wrought great and dire havoc. We might speculate that either Varus had not sent out scouts to check for danger, or he had, but those scouts were locals, and they were part of the plot against the Romans. Again, we're joining the Roman army, marching through northwestern Germany, on a road with trees on either side, with hills to the south, and flat, marshy land stretching to the north. We have four literary sources, four Roman writers who tell us about the event. None of them were present. They're all depending on other sources. And as so often the sources don't entirely agree with each other, 
and they are somewhat impressionistic and we might guess, in some cases, somewhat fictional. But let's try to reconstruct what really happened. Well, it appears that the attack took place in stages. I'm going to quote from the historian Cassius Dio, a Roman senator who was writing 200 years later. He states that the first attack began like this. Meanwhile, a violent rain and wind came, while the ground that had become slippery around the roots and logs made walking very treacherous for the Romans, and the tops of the trees kept breaking off and falling down, causing much confusion. While the Romans were in such difficulties, the barbarians, that is the Germans, suddenly surrounded them on all sides at once, coming through the densest thickets as they were acquainted with the paths. Honestly, the rain and the wind sound a little too good to be true, a little too gothic novelly. But given the climate in northern Germany, they're not impossible. Now, as you've noticed, the Roman sources refer to Germans as barbarians. And I think that's actually a symptom of the problem that the Romans underestimated their enemies. Anyhow, Dio then goes on to say that the Romans made a camp and burned their equipment. The next day, they advanced again. If we believe Dio, the battle lasted for four days. I'm not sure of that myself, but I do think there was more than one attack. I also believe Dio when he writes that the Romans were hampered by their wagons, by their beasts of burden, and by the presence not only of slaves, but of women and children. As the bad weather continued, the enemy attacked continually. According to Cassius Dio, the battered Roman troops kept advancing, but only to march deeper into a trap. After traveling a distance of several miles, maybe as much as 10 miles, the troops reached the foot of a place called the Calcrisa Hill. It's about 350 feet high. Here, the Romans had to march through a passage about four miles long and only about a half mile wide. To their north stood a large bog. To their south stood the hill. The road was not great. Obstacles included streams, marshes, and trees. What awaited the Romans as they went through this narrow passage? Let me read what Dio says about the final confrontation. The Romans were still advancing when the fourth day dawned, and again a heavy downpour and violent wind assailed them, preventing them from going forward and even from standing securely, and moreover depriving them of the use of their weapons, for they could not handle their bows or their javelins with any success nor, for that matter, their shields, because they were all thoroughly soaked. Their opponents, on the other hand, being for the most part lightly equipped and able to approach and retire freely, suffered less from the storm. Furthermore, the enemy's forces had greatly increased, as many of those who had at first wavered joined them, largely in the hope of plunder, and thus they could more easily encircle and strike down the Romans, whose ranks were now thinned, many having perished in the earlier fighting. Again, that's Cassius Dio. We don't know how many Germans were lying in wait, but given what archaeology tells us about German settlements in this period, and given what we know about better documented battles, it's reasonable to imagine that there were about 15,000 German soldiers waiting for the Romans. As you recall, there were something like 15 to 20,000 Romans, at least at the beginning of the battle. The numbers were somewhat less now. We can guess that the Germans began the attack with javelins, then continued with swords, spears, and lances. They were very effective. 
In the first few minutes alone, 15,000 men could have thrown tens of thousands of javelins. Then, brandishing their swords, they ran into the trapped and bewildered Romans, coming at the Romans, as it appeared to the Romans, with that fury for which the Germans were famous. The Romans were highly disciplined soldiers, but in the narrow, marshy conditions, they found it impossible to organize themselves properly. They couldn't get into proper order. They couldn't get into their companies and units. In fact, they didn't have a chance. A huge amount of killing would have taken place within an hour. It must have been awful. One historian who has offered a reconstruction of the battle writes that there was blood everywhere, creating a powerful smell. The road was littered with bodies and body parts. Some men died rapidly. Others lingered on, groaning. When it became clear that the situation was hopeless, the officers committed suicide. Varus, the commander, was among them. When the fighting was over, very few Romans lived to tell the tale. Most of the 15 to 20,000 men were dead or dying. Several thousand survivors were enslaved. Some of the men who were still alive after the battle were probably killed in religious rituals as human sacrifices to the Germanic gods. One Roman author recounts this tale of the mistreatment of the Roman survivors. Quote, the Germans put out the eyes of some of them and cut off the hands of others. They sewed up the mouth of one of them after first cutting out his tongue, exclaiming, at last, you viper, you have ceased to hiss. This might be fiction, but then again, it might reflect an accurate tradition brought back years later by one of the Romans who had been enslaved and then was later freed. Only a very few Roman survivors made it back to their legionary base at Vetera, the modern city of Xanten, on the west side of the Rhine, about 150 miles away by modern roads. As for the Germans, it has been estimated that only about 500 of them died, with perhaps another 1,500 wounded. To add insult to injury, the Germans captured the symbols of the legions, in particular, their eagles, made of silver or bronze, for each legion carried a pole topped by a metal eagle with outstretched wings. The legionaries venerated their eagle, and its loss was the ultimate dishonor. The news traveled south. Augustus, Rome's first emperor, was the ruler at the time. As one of our sources reports, dispatches from Germany brought the baleful news of the death of Varus and of the slaughter of three legions and of as many divisions of cavalry and of six cohorts of infantry. At the report, Augustus was shaken and afraid. He even took the precaution of dismissing his German bodyguard in Rome. Like many a politician, Augustus put the blame for defeat on someone else. Augustus famously cried out, Quintiliore legionis rede. Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. The loss of three legions was no laughing matter. Since Rome had a total of 28 legions, it meant the loss of more than 10% of Rome's best troops. It took decades before they were replaced. As I said earlier, Tudorburg Forest was more of an ambush or a massacre than a battle. The Romans fought back as best they could, but the Germans had set the trap up so well that the Romans could not avoid being victims. 
How had it happened? What was it like? What did it mean? Tudorberg Forest is one of the most famous battles of the ancient world. Over the centuries, it became a symbol of resistance to Rome, a symbol of freedom, and a symbol of German nationalism. In the Renaissance, German scholars translated the name Arminius into the German name Hermann, which gives us the cute line used in lecture by many a professor, Hermann the German. Unfortunately, we can't be sure that this was really his name. In the 19th century, a heroic statue was erected at what people at the time thought was the site of the battle, but which we now believe is incorrect. Tudorberg Forest is different from the other battles in our series because of the precious information that archaeology has discovered. As with other ancient battles, we know about it from written sources. In this case, Tacitus, Valeus Paterculus, Florus, and Cassius Dio. As usual, the sources are scanty and often contradictory. But archaeology has come to the rescue. In fact, it's a marvelous story of popular initiative and of detective work. In 1987, an amateur archaeologist, a British soldier stationed in Germany, found a cache of Roman coins from the era of Augustus, and none later, as well as some oval-shaped Roman sling projectiles. This led to an excavation by professional archaeologists. In fact, to season after season of excavation that has been going on ever since. The site is northeast of the city of Osnabrück and at the end of the Kalkrise Hill. The archaeologists have found battle debris along a corridor almost 15 miles from east to west and a little more than a mile wide. Among the things they have found are coins, weapons such as spearheads and sling projectiles, fragments of clothing worn by legionaries, studs from sandals, buttons from garments, links from armor, a Roman officer's ceremonial face mask, which was originally silver-plated, and human remains. Almost all the bones belong to men between the ages of 20 and 40, that is, to men of military age. Some of the coins are stamped VAR for Varus, the Roman governor of Germany and the commander of the expedition. The archaeologists also found a long, zigzagging wall of peat turf and packed sand. Most excavators believe that we have found the site of the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest, although, as always in archaeology, there are skeptics who prefer other sites. We think of the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest as taking place in the forest, in the woods. It has been pointed out, though, that forest might be a mistranslation. The Latin is Totoborgiensis saltus. The word saltus can mean forest, but it can also mean pass, as in mountain pass. So the battle might have occurred in the narrows rather than in the woods. We might think of it as the Battle of the Tudorberg Pass. I had the good fortune to visit the site, to visit Kalkrise last May. What a stirring sight. To me, it seems absolutely amazing that we can go to the probable site of a battle that when I was a student, you could only read about in books. I went to northwestern Germany. I visited Kalkrise on a gray day, cool and drizzling, and so appropriate for thinking about the miserable weather of the time of the battle. An archaeologist gave a tour of the excavations and offered an update on the progress of the work. It was easy to imagine ghosts as we walked across the killing fields. The excavators found a wall of turf and sand at the foot of the Kalkrise Hill. At first, they thought the wall was put up by the Germans, who hid behind it as part of the ambush. 
More recently, they've been reconsidering, and they now think that perhaps the Romans might have thrown up the wall in order to try to protect themselves. The main interest at the site is indoors, in the museum, where a selection of finds from the excavations is on display. These include coins, weaponry, parts of helmets and breastplates, buttons, nails, studs, sling stones, and both human and animal bones. They're just a small selection of the 6,000 scraps of Roman equipment found at the site. The most impressive single find, it's a cavalry mask, such as an officer would wear on the parade ground. Actually, it's the iron foundation of that mask. The silver layer that originally covered it is missing and was surely taken off as a trophy by one of the victors. The mask is not large. It's only about six and a half inches high by a little over three inches wide. It's a small thing, but it's impressive in its workmanship and in its humanity. We look at it, and it's almost as if the mask were about to speak to us. It has an eerie effect. It's been speculated the mask was left as part of some kind of simple shrine set up to commemorate the battle. It's been suggested that the site of the battle was a holy site to the Germanic god Donar, later known as Thor. To me, one of the most eloquent finds is a bronze bell around the neck of a mule, part of whose skeleton survives. The bell's iron clapper was muffled with a handful of oats, which the owner had probably grabbed along the way. So the clapper and the oats survive as well. Muffling the clapper with the oats kept the mule moving as silently as could be, which is a sign of how nervous the Romans had become as they moved through a hostile country. The oats are also a key piece of evidence because they allow us to date the battle in the month of September when the oats were ripe. Almost no Germanic equipment has been found at Calchisa. Why? Well, it probably reflects three things. First, the Germans probably suffered very few casualties compared to the Romans. Second, some of the German warriors probably wore Roman equipment, either because they were deserters from the Roman army or because they had bought or stolen that equipment. And three, the Germans surely removed their dead and buried them elsewhere with their weapons. Now let's take a step away from the archaeology and look at strategic context of what happened in the Teutoburg Forest. By contrast, Actium, the Battle of Actium, was a victory owed in no small part to Augustus's cunning and guile. The Teutoburg Forest was a defeat also owed in large part to cunning and guile, but not on the part of Augustus, rather to cunning and guile on the part of a determined enemy of Rome. Arminius, the Germanic chieftain, and Augustus, the Roman emperor, were very, very different people. Yet in one way, Arminius was a mirror image of Augustus. Augustus had an intimate knowledge of his chief enemy, Mark Antony. It was a knowledge born both of personal acquaintance and of the intelligence that could have been supplied to Augustus by Antony's wife, who was also Augustus's sister, Octavia. Augustus and Antony were once colleagues and once brothers-in-law. Then Augustus turned on Antony in order to secure supreme power. Arminius and Rome were once allies. 
Then Arminius turned on Rome in order to secure the independence of his people. It would never have happened without Augustus's aggressive foreign and military policy. It's true that not many of Rome's allies in this period acquired citizenship, although that was the wave of the future. But by fighting for Rome, Arminius was playing a familiar role that had been played before by many of Rome's confederates. So many other allies of Rome fought for the Romans uh, in allied units. Rome's conquest of Germany was not an act of alliance. It was an act of pure aggression. It's true that certain German tribes had attacked Italy in an earlier century, but Julius Caesar had little or no strategic reason to bridge the Rhine in the mid-50s BC. He was simply raiding to add to his glory. Under his impetus, Rome set up colonies along the Rhine and pushed across it. Augustus was not a great warrior, but he was a thorough imperialist. His favorite poet, Virgil, surely expresses a notion of Rome's destiny that Augustus shares when Virgil proclaims that Romans shall enjoy imperium sine fine, empire without end. By the way, if you're interested in learning more about Augustus and the Roman Empire, have a look at my new book, Ten Caesars, where Augustus is the first chapter. By AD 9, the Romans convinced themselves that they were on the way to adding to that empire without end. They convinced themselves that they had succeeded in pacifying Germany as far east as the Elba River. How wrong they were. Here is Cassius Dio again. The Romans were holding portions of Germany, not entire regions, but merely such districts as happened to have been subdued, so that no record has been made of the fact. And soldiers of theirs were wintering there, and cities were being founded. The barbarians were adapting themselves to Roman ways. They were becoming accustomed to hold markets and were meeting in peaceful assemblages. They had not, however, forgotten their ancestral habits, their native manners, their old life of independence, or the power derived from arms. Actually, archaeology shows that before Caesar's act of aggression, the Germans didn't have that many arms. It's only in response to Roman aggression that the Germans become more militarized. Interesting. We should say something about Arminius and his motives. Technically, he was a traitor to the Romans whom he served. But Arminius had seen what the Roman Empire meant to his people. It meant land confiscated by the conquerors, taxes imposed, local customs flouted, and colonies implanted on German territory. In short, the Roman Empire meant the end of German freedom. Arminius fought to save it. To the notion of imperium sine fine, or empire without end, Arminius opposed a different notion, libertas, or liberty. Even a Roman could understand that. The Roman author Florus sums up the results of Tudorberg Forest thus, quote, the result of this disaster was that the empire, which had not stopped on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, was checked on the banks of the Rhine. Tudorberg Forest was a genuine historical turning point. Before the battle, Rome was establishing cities in Germany on the eastern side of the Rhine in preparation for creating a new province, a greater Germania. It would extend as far eastward as the Elba River, 
archaeology has indeed found several Roman settlements that were laid out east of the Rhine and were in the process of being built up. The plan, surely, was that ex-Italian legionaries would settle there as veterans. All of these settlements were abandoned after Rome's defeat in AD 9. They were abandoned after the defeat at Tudorburg Forest. After Tudorburg Forest, both those cities and that new province were dropped from Rome's agenda. Now, it's true, after 9 AD, Rome sent large armies across the Rhine for several succeeding years. Rome won victories over the Germans and Arminius, and Rome recovered two of the three lost eagles. But seven years after the defeat, in the year 16, the emperor Tiberius recalled Rome's army from its conquering mission. From then on, the Rhine River marked the eastern boundary of Roman territory. That is, at least in northern Germany. In southern Germany, the Romans did cross the Rhine, and they controlled a large area east of the Rhine for about 200 years, from about 70 to about 260. Still, the Rhine was the frontier for most of Germany. Let's go back to the big picture. The idea of a decisive battle is risky because we can't control all the variables of what might have happened in later years had events gone differently. Still, we are entitled to speculate. If Arminius had not succeeded at the Tudorburg Forest, then the history of Germany might have changed dramatically. Because of Tudorburg Forest, most of Germany remained, well, from the Roman point of view, it remained uncivilized, but it also remained free. That was true from any point of view, and the Romans themselves admitted it. If Arminius had not destroyed three Roman legions, Germany might have been Romanized. In that case, no confederations of German tribes would have conquered the Western Roman Empire, as they did in the 5th century AD. In that case, Germans today might speak a Latinized language, similar to French, Italian, or Spanish, instead of the Germanic language that they do speak. For that matter, Anglophones might be speaking something more like French than English. Obviously, a Latinized Germania might have had big consequences for the future history of all Europe and not just Germany. It's too much, much too much, to say that a straight line runs from Teutoburg Forest in AD 9 to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West in the year 476, when a group of Germans conquered Italy and deposed the last Roman emperor. We can't say that, but we can say this. Arminius's victory in the Teutoburg Forest meant that the Romans had received a foretaste of what the limits of empire might be. And it offered a preview, or maybe just a hint, that Germany might cross those limits someday and threaten Rome itself. Well, friends and listeners, we have reached the end of our season. This has been the last episode in our series on great battles of the ancient world. You know, we've certainly covered a lot of territory. We've looked at the following battles at Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis, Granicus River, and Issus, all from the Greek world, and Cannae, Zama, Pharsalus, Actium, and Teutoburg Forest, all from the Roman world. Although our focus has been on Greeks and Romans, we have not looked at them in isolation. In fact, we've taken them into battle against several other great ancient civilizations. 
Persians, Carthaginians, and Germans. Only a few of the battles that we have examined took place within Greek or Roman civilization, but war between civilizations was a constant of the ancient world, as it has been of all eras. So much blood, so much killing. Don't despair. There was an enormous amount of peaceful interchange as well, trade, migration, and cultural interchange. Our focus, however, has been different. Why? As a historian of warfare, I think it's important to remind people that competition has been a constant of human history, and that competition often leads to violent outcomes. The result is a dramatic story, but I hope it's more than that. I hope it's a reminder of two things in what remains an often cold and cruel world. First, to defend ourselves so as to deter any potential aggressor. And second, to work for peace. As the Romans knew, peace doesn't just happen. It only comes about if people make it happen. I hope that you have enjoyed this series. I have certainly enjoyed speaking to you. Please like us on iTunes, and if you are so moved, write a review. Be well and stay tuned until next time when there will be another season of Antiquitas. Theme music by Lush Life.